Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 26. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are back again, rolling on with our marathon of original animated films into live-action remakes. This one really kind of kicks off a controversial couple of weeks. We're starting with 1951's Alice in Wonderland. Um, was this a staple in your house? Kind of. Um... I loved this movie as a kid, but we didn't have it. Um, I remember I had to track it down. Actually, uh, this was the other one that I bought on one of my first trips to Disney World at the writer's shop in MGM. Um, I mentioned it in our Pete's Dragon review that they were two favorites of mine as a child. And Pete's Dragon, we had taped off the television uh, and you know, as happens with VHSs, I think, you know, it just didn't work anymore. The VCR ate the tape or something like that. Um, and this one I remember I loved as a kid, but couldn't find it anywhere. So I didn't get my hands on it until I was like 10 years old, I think. That's so weird. Yeah, we had it. We had it on VHS for basically as long as I can remember. And uh, we watched it a lot as a kid, and uh, or as kids, I should say. And I liked it enough. Um, it it wasn't my favorite of the Disney movies, but we did watch it quite a bit. So watching it more recently, um, it was kind of interesting to see it through the eyes of an adult. I don't know how it was for you. I agree. I think this is one of the few that your opinion kind of changes as you get older. Absolutely. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, but... We will talk about it as yes, we do. absolutely. So the film opens up um, with Alice being read to by her sister, and she's very bored. So she wanders off into a wooded area where she sees and pursues the white rabbit who continues to tell her that he is late. She follows him into the rabbit hole where after a lengthy fall, she watches him run through a small door. Uh, she finds a bottle on a table that says, drink me. So she drinks it, and she shrinks her size down to fit through the door, but she forgets to take the key with her that was also sitting on the table. She eats a biscuit that says, eat me, spoiler, <laughs> to grow, uh, but she eats too much. She grows too big and begins to cry, flooding the room. She drinks the rest of the potion out of the bottle, falls into the bottle as she shrinks, and then floats through the keyhole of the small door. That's where she meets Tweedledee and Tweedledum, who tell her the story of the walrus and the carpenter. She then follows the rabbit back to his house. He sends her to go inside to get his gloves. She eats another biscuit, grows too large, and overtakes his home. But she th uh, shrinks down to the size of three inches after eating a carrot from his garden. She then meets some singing flowers who mistake her for a weed and a caterpillar whom she offends when complaining about her height of only three inches because he's also three inches tall, but he gives her a mushroom to eat to grow back to her regular height. Alice then meets the Cheshire Cat who points her in the direction of the Mad Hatter to help her find the White Rabbit who, is she, who she is still pursuing up to this point in time. We meet the Mad Hatter, the March Hare, and the Dormouse who are celebrating their unbirthday. Alice decides she's had enough, she wants to go home, so the Cheshire Cat advises her to go see the Queen of Hearts to get home, and she gets forced into a rigged game of croquet. The Cheshire Cat uh, causes havoc at the game. Um, the Queen blames Alice for the mayhem and orders her, her beheading, though the King says that we should have a trial. After her trial quote-unquote, because that, too, is very much rigged. The Mad Hatter, the Hare, and the Dormouse are called on as witnesses. Chaos ensues. Alice is on the run. She eats a mushroom. She grows to be a bigger size. They order her to leave because they are afraid of her. She then takes the opportunity to tell off the queen, but as it's happening, she shrinks down to her normal size. She's no longer intimidating. She's on the run. She wakes up from her dream to escape Wonderland, and she walks off with her sister. It's probably the quickest plot we've ever given for a film. Yeah. But to be honest with you, there's 
aside from the visuals, there's not an awful lot going on in this movie. Yeah, I think that's one of the things where my opinion has changed as an adult. Like, I remember seriously loving this movie as a kid, but I think that's because of these brilliant scenes that were animated. And that kind of takes precedent over story. And it's also a very short movie. It's only an hour and 15 minutes long. Yeah. I remember this movie, and I guess that's kind of how things are when you're a kid. You remember things being so much longer than they were. But I thought this movie was far more involved. Right. And I thought that there were so many more scenes. Like, I remember when I watched as a kid, I feel like when she gets to the room with the doorknob that that kind of dragged on for a lot longer and then the crying was like almost a whole separate thing yeah right i thought so too but i don't think anything was trimmed out of this dvd no um the script for this movie is it's interesting to say the least at times it's very frustrating times it's kind of confusing but and maybe i'm burying the lead here but i just want to get this out of the way I don't think this movie is about an acid trip. No. And I know that so many people, they'd say, oh, you know, that's that, that movie's about drugs. No. Is the movie psychedelic? Yes. Does it lend itself to that theory because eating mushrooms to alter your shape and yeah, okay. If you connect the dots, sure, it makes sense. But this came out in 1951, far before the psychedelic mushroom drug generation, which really was the 1960s. I think that Walt Disney, we know that he wanted to pursue Alice. He had done the Alice shorts. Those were some of his original films in the early 1920s. Where he, Alice was live action. Right. And they put her in an animated world. So clearly he's had a thing for these stories for a long time, similar to Mary Poppins. This is just when he pulled it off and he was able to really think outside the box and experiment with this really contemporary animation to create this world that he'd only read about in books. I don't think any of this has to do with drug abuse. No, I don't think so at all. I mean, that's not to say that the book wasn't. This was based off of... Lewis Carroll's book, right. Alice and Her... Well, this movie actually pulls from two books. It's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, which was a sequel. So they pulled elements from both and put them into this film. Um, I'm more of the school of this has to do with uh, running into more uh, mentally unstable characters yes. uh, like Tweedledee and Tweedledum being the split personalities, the Mad Hatter being a drunk. Um, I don't think, I, I definitely agree with you on the drugs thing. I don't think that that was the purpose of this film, but I think that um, there's definitely secondary meanings to each and every one of these characters. Oh, no doubt about it. There's more going on than meets the eye. I don't think it's as it's, I don't think it's as blatant as you have these very two very bizarre twin brothers. You have a Mad Hatter who's just zany and an angry Red Queen. Mm-hmm. There, there's clearly more to it than that. Um, and that's where I do give this film credit because they're caricatures, but they're done so in a way that are not over the head of children. And I think that... They, for a lack of better word, or for a lack of better term, I should say, they kind of dumb things down so that it is on a child's level. Because at the end of the day, this is an animated film. It's a cartoon. It's geared towards children, especially because it came out of Walt Disney Productions. This was the company where, at this time, they had just put out Cinderella. That was the film that came out before this. So they're hitting on all eight cylinders, big time with the family films. This is one of those rare instances where I do believe it was worth adapting a book to film. Like, I'm a big reader. I'm not a fan of everything now being adapted to film. Like, after Harry Potter, that opened a can of worms. And now, like, every YA book, everything written by John Green is just going straight. You know, it's like they get a book and a movie deal. Um 
and I'm kind of a purist in that regard where, you know, I love a movie as a movie and a book as a book. And I, I think that sometimes you shouldn't cross them over. This is actually a rule that I'm glad that they broke in this case because I think that this adaptation is done so well. It works as a Disney film because like you said, they made it fun and colorful and easy for kids to understand. And it's over the top without being completely outrageous. Uh, And I think that that really works here. Yes. I, I think that you're right. Um, but the movie, it, it, it's, it is kind of confusing because the movie doesn't really have a beginning, middle, and end. Other than she's with her sister and, fall, and, and walks off into the woods, and then she's in Wonderland, and then she wakes up. That's not a beginning, middle, and end. Right. You can start this film at any point in the film and not be lost. Right. It, it's... It's almost like cyclical, like you could start it in the middle of the movie and then watch it to the end and then go to the beginning and it'll still make sense in a way. It does, but the movie does tend to be convoluted at times because it's really just, she's following the white rabbit. Mm -hmm. Why? We never find out why she wants to pursue the white rabbit. She's just very curious as to why he's late. Other than that, she's just easily distracted. Right. And she's bored, really. Yeah. And and he keeps telling her, I'm late, I'm late. And she's, Mr. Rabbit, Mr. Rabbit. Like, he, Alice, he's not going to wait for you. Right. Like, she keeps, like, calling to him, thinking that he's going to stop and wait for her. What kills me about her the most is that she does all of the things that she knows she shouldn't do. And she does it anyway, to the point where she actually comes out and says... I give myself good advice. I just don't follow it. Right. We talked a couple of months ago about Snow White, how Snow White was not the most bright person on earth. Sure. Just to put it nicely. I actually think Snow White is better off than Alice is. And I'll tell you why. Snow White doesn't know any better. Alice knows exactly what she should and shouldn't do, and she does what she shouldn't do anyway, knowingly. And it's incredibly frustrating. I agree with you. I think the term that we coined for Snow White was a flowery princess. Yes. To put it nicely. Um, There's a lot of the script that's frustrating. I definitely agree with you there. Um, It's not just Alice not taking her own advice. She's very contradictory. Um, but it's it's in the dialogue itself. Like, I feel like these scenes get escalated because they keep interrupting each other and they don't hear each other out. Like, specifically with the caterpillar. Ugh. He keeps asking her who she is and she's told everybody, I'm Alice, I'm Alice. And she never comes out and says that to him. But, I mean, I guess as you do go deeper into the film, like, she loses herself more and more, so she's not sure who she is. I think one of the lines is, um, I'm a different person than I was yesterday. Or that that might be from the book. I don't know if they actually come out and say it in the film, but that is part of her character. Is I'm a diff- How do I know who I am? Because I'm a different person than I was yesterday. Right. And... Uh... She, you're right. Things get escalated quickly. They go from zero to sixty. Yeah. Partially because they keep interrupt, um, uh, keep interrupting each other. But there's no breathing room in this movie. No. They, I mean, they go from point A to point B so quick. And well, things are up, but then they're down, and then they're left, and then they're right. But I say no, but I mean yes. And sometimes when they do that, and they do it a couple of times in this movie, unless you've seen it a few times. The movie is very hard to follow. And I watched this a lot as a kid, but admittedly, I don't think I'd watch this movie in almost 20 years. Mm. So going back and watching it this week for the first time in so long, it did take a good three viewings for me to really understand what was going on. And that's one of those things where as a kid, you don't care because the movie is just so fun to look at. To touch on what you said about you know, up is down and left is right. And, you know, everything's the opposite. I mean, they do set that up nicely in the beginning when she's singing 
um, a world of my own. And it sets up her character because it establishes that she's bored uh, and she's basically talking about what she wants and if she had things her way, what they would be like. So that really is the story arc is, you know, be careful what you wish for because once she gets that, nothing makes sense to her and she realizes that she doesn't want this anymore. I mean, that's that's really the whole thing in a nutshell is Alice thinks that she knows what she wants and she kind of figures out what she doesn't want instead by process of elimination. So by the end of the film, you really still don't know what it is that she's after. Right. You just know what it is that she does not want. Yeah. And I think that's where this film is really frustrating too because first of all, this is the film, this is like the first film where we're following a female lead where she's not a princess and all of the Disney princesses, whether they're the earlier ones, the flowery ones like Snow White and Cinderella versus your more modern ones like Ariel and Jasmine and Anna and Elsa, regardless, the princesses are all so driven as to what they want. I want to stop cleaning my stepmother's house. I want to go to the ball. I want legs. I want independence. Whatever it is, you know. With her, she's not after a prince. And she doesn't really know what she wants. So it is frustrating. I think that that's, that's probably the thing that aggravates me the most about this movie it ends abruptly and quite honestly the movie doesn't go anywhere it, it goes absolutely nowhere she's no better off at the end in my opinion than she was in the beginning that's exactly it is that there's no there's a little bit of a story arc but there's no character arc this almost has a little bit of a wizard of oz ending in that it was all a dream. And you do kind of get a similar message of like, be careful what you wish for. But the Wizard of Oz, I mean, obviously it does it a lot differently. It does it a lot stronger because Dorothy learns the lesson to not look any further than her own backyard for what she's searching for. This, Alice didn't know what she was looking for. She didn't find anything. She wasn't changed by it in any way. She was just bored and she woke up from a dream. Well, that's the thing is the Wizard of Oz taught you to appreciate what you have. Exactly. This movie didn't teach you anything. And and the character doesn't learn anything. I mean, the only thing that I think they were maybe trying to get kids to take from it is to be careful who you're running into because nobody could help her. The Cheshire Cat a little bit points her towards the White Rabbit. So he does help her in some way, but... Really, none of the other characters do anything for her. They can't tell her how to get home. They can't tell her how to find the white rabbit. And they just confuse her or or anger her. The most useless character in this movie is the caterpillar. The caterpillar does absolutely nothing other than give her a mushroom so that she gets back to her normal height. There's nothing about that scene that pushes the film forward. There's nothing about the scene that's all that endearing. Other than the fact that it's nicely animated, this scene makes no sense. That is, I think, the scene that's most infuriating for me because he just never lets her finish. So aside from the fact that you've already spent three quarters of the film with everything not really going anywhere, it just kind of drives it home even more. And like that's the point in the story where... like there should be the turning point. We should be, you know, there, there should be some sort of climax happening and nothing really does. And I, I think that's the thing of why it's so different watching it now is because it takes place in a series of vignettes. Okay, fine. Each character that she meets, they have their own scene and that's it. They really serve no purpose for the greater story. But, it's definitely one of those things where as a kid you never mind any of it because it just looks so cool and it's fun and there's fun songs and fun characters. And um, I think that's actually one of the things, like like I said, I remember hunting this movie down because I didn't have it as a kid, but I loved it and I wanted to have it so I could watch it a million times whenever I wanted. But 
what stops it from being a favorite now is exactly that, is that it is frustrating. The story is almost non-existent. And really, Alice is what stops this from being a favorite for me, too, because she is such a contradictory character. And I love that she's a dreamer, but she's also kind of a brat. Like, I feel like in every one of these scenes, she gets fed up so easily and then she walks away in a huff. Right. Or cries and then says, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But I did it anyway, because all I do is the exact thing I say I shouldn't do. Exactly. And I know better, but I don't care. Absolutely. The only scene in this movie, in my opinion, that actually teaches you anything is when you meet Tweedledee and Tweedledum and they tell you the story of the walrus and the carpenter. The whole point of that story is be careful who you trust. Be careful who you follow. Don't walk away with strangers. That is one of my favorite scenes, though. Like, I do love Tweedledee and Tweedledum. I think they're a lot of fun. But I love the walrus and the carpenter. I love this. Cabbages and King song. I just love that whole sequence, which is weird because it feels the most disconnected to the rest of this film. Right. Like the animation looks a little bit different. It's bright. Uh, you know, they're not in the forest. They're on the beach. Like, granted, it's supposed to be Tweedled- Tweedledee and Tweedledum telling the story. But that's also kind of jarring because they're the only ones who do that. They're the only ones who tell Alice a story and it kind of flashes away to a different place in time. Right. I think the biggest problem with this movie, if you look into how this film was made, um, there were five or six different directors of animation on this film Mm. that they each took their own segment. And I think it was Ward Kimball, actually, years later. I want to say he did an interview with Leonard Maltin, and they talked about why this movie failed because this movie now is a cult classic Mm -hmm. but at the time that the movie came out it was a box office bomb yeah and they said the thing that really kamikaze this movie was you had all of these directors of animation that had their own vignettes and they were trying to out crazy the next one and it just (laughs) got out of control and it was never cohesive and I think looking back on it all these years later, it's that I mean that's that's totally on the nose. Well, that's kind of what I was saying before. Like for a book like this to be adapted to film, it was worth doing for the visuals, but you didn't really capitalize on the story in the same way that Mary Poppins did. Mary Poppins was told as a series of vignettes, same way this is, but the difference is when Disney did the movie, they found a way to ground it and to pull all those stories together in the Mr. Banks character and his relationship with his children. I think you needed something like that here. Right. Or maybe the turning point of the film could have been when Alice was, um, this would have been uh, here. Here's how you. Here's how it. Where hey, as I'm thinking this out loud, here's where it makes the most sense. You flip this movie around a little bit, and you have her shrink down after eating the carrot. Okay. Runs into the caterpillar, who she does eventually introduce herself to because you said it before and I had it in my notes. He keeps asking, "Who are you?" But she doesn't say who it is. If she would explain, I'm Alice, I'm lost, I'm this, I'm that, and I am so sick and tired of being stuck at this height, and he screams at her, loses his mind, because he's upset that she has offended the height of three inches because that's his height. Right, he's insulted. He banishes her away from him in this kind of fantasy world that she's created because she's running away with her imagination she then meets the flowers because let's not forget they think she's a weed when they find out she's not a flower they cast her out they Mm -hmm. want her gone that's when her character arc starts in seeing that maybe exclusivity is not the way to go be a more inclusive person that's where you start to learn a little bit more about growing up and maturing, and it's okay to have your imagination, but you start to really think about how you treat those around you 
Maybe when she comes out of this dream, she treats her sister with a little bit more respect, who's trying to teach her. Very interesting. That makes this movie a whole lot better. It does, because it also kind of drives the point home that she's bored in her real life, and now she's not fitting in where she's at either. And that's not to say, you know, that she should try and acclimate to her surroundings, but... um. You know, I mean, it. I, I'm not saying it in the sense of she should crush who she is as an individual, but she should kind of embrace her role a little bit and just take accountability for herself. Right. Because she doesn't do any of that in this movie. Correct. And how that slipped through the hands of all those people at Disney who up to that point in time and still to this day are master storytellers. Yes. I, I don't know if they were kind of trying to go like with a Fantasia thing here and it just it didn't work. I I just don't know what they were motivated in doing here because they have, as I said to you before, in the years past, they have admitted that it was that they made mistakes. No, and it's such a shame, too, because like you were saying before, Disney had those Alice shorts and they were so innovative because he was the first person to put a live action girl in with the animated background. And to see that not, you know, that this film wasn't as groundbreaking as what he did, that this was his really his first film and his first character. And this was a chance you know, especially in his later career to be the pinnacle of everything that he's done and everything he's learned and combine that all together with a character that he really, really cared about. And it just falls so flat. I want to talk a little bit, though, about some of the things that they did do right and some of the things that does make this movie such a cult classic. And I think that that's... um, the characters and the music really, because that's what I remember as a kid. And I remember when I finally got the movie and watching it, I was drawn pretty much to all of the secondary characters as opposed to Alice. And like, even now it's funny as an adult, like I have probably more little mermaid and Alice in Wonderland merch than I do anything else. And maybe pirates of the Caribbean, but as far as the animated ones go, I realized like I have the Alice in Wonderland wallet, I have a hoodie, I have a Cheshire Cat shirt, and I realized when we were prepping for this episode that I have all those things, but like it's still like not one of my favorite movies, but I realized that I love the characters so much more than the sum of all their parts. Right. And and I think we're going to discuss the Tim Burton remake next week, but I want to mention one thing about that now. Even when that movie came out, who is the character that was the focal point of all the marketing? The it, Mad Hatter. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't Alice. I think a lot of that had to do with who played the Mad Hatter, but you're right. And like the big takeaways, like think about even what's in the parks now. You have the teacups. I mean, granted in Disneyland, okay, you do have the dark ride, which I loved, by the way. It was excellent. Um but you have the teacups and that's, you know, the big takeaway is out is the mad tea party. You even have, you know, in Disney World, you have the topiaries out front and it's Alice with the Mad Hatter and the March Hare. Um, but I think that's it. I feel like the characters are so much more memorable than Alice herself. They have the characters in the parade and there is an Alice meet and greet at Epcot. But otherwise, I think now without delving too much into the live-action version of the film, I can point to at least two adaptations, modern adaptations of this story, where the title character is almost secondary to the secondary characters. Right. Because she's kind of forgettable. Right. Without the other characters in this film and without some of the music... This movie would be forgotten about. It would be a flop. Yeah. It would be a total flop. Without the Cheshire Cat, without the Queen of Hearts, without the Mad Hatter. I think the Mad Hatter, and I want to see how you feel about this because we're going to talk about the characters now. I think the Mad Hatter is probably the most iconic and the most important character out of this film. 
I don't know because you get, but that that's what I'm saying. They're all so memorable. I mean, I, I don't know. The Red Queen and Off With Her Head, I mean, that's pretty iconic in and of itself. Uh, the Tweedles, you still see them in the parades. And I, I think, you know, that's kind of an offhand expression people use is like, oh, it's Tweedledee and Tweedledum, you know, when they're discussing people that they don't really like. And um, I think the Cheshire Cat is really memorable. I mean, I feel like he's probably on most of the merch. Yeah. That's true. Probably the most marketable one. I guess it's just because they don't have a meet and greet with that character, but you see the Mad Hatter so often in the parks, whether it be on the teacup ride, in a parade. He seems to be almost... The face of the film, almost. Almost. Yeah. He's basically, with the exception of, and, and, and maybe I'm wrong about this, I haven't seen him in Epcot Center at the meet and greet. Maybe he is, and I just haven't seen him. But other than... That instance, assuming Alice is by herself there, Alice never goes anywhere in the parks without the Mad Hatter. True. Um, and I mean, we'll, we'll get, let's get into the characters now. I'm sure that you have an order in which you want to go, and I've totally thrown that off, which is kind of consistent with this entire movie. <laughs> none of it makes sense, and none of it is in any sort of order. No, I actually... I, I really don't like there were a couple of things that I, I wanted to hit on. Um, you know, I mean, the the white rabbit, for example. OK. Um, you know, she's chasing him down. We never really find out why. I mean, yes, she wants to know where he's going. But like to me, he's kind of like th- that's the other thing. I mean, you want to talk about memorable, char- memorable characters. I feel like the white rabbit is also you know, one that's talked about and one that has become an iconic character, but like why? Because he of serves I'm late. no purpose to this film. Yeah, I guess. Because of the song. But he doesn't not serve a purpose. He gets her down into the rabbit hole. He's who she is pursuing. Right. The problem is we don't know why. That's the thing. Other than that he's the Queen's trumpet player and he's going to the croquet match, we don't know anything about him. Not a thing. He's not an intriguing character. No. Not at all. He doesn't have a funny line. He's got a semi-catchy song. And he's late. That's about it. To me, the doorknob is just as interesting. Yeah, true. Alice, we've already talked about. And the doorknob, of all the characters in this movie... That was the one created for the movie. Yeah. Um, he didn't exist in the book. But Alice, we've talked about. The Mad Hatter. I mean, you know my feelings on him. I, I just I just told you what I thought what my feelings were. Uh, but uh, I, I do think, for all intents and purposes, he is the face of the film. Cheshire Cat, I think he's he's close. Close second, yeah. But that's that's just how I feel about it. Well, I think the other thing with the Mad Hatter, too, I mean, it's the Mad Hatter and the March Hare, but you really never talk about the March Hare. Like, he falls right. secondary. But that whole scene, I love I, I love the just the idea of it, the Mad Tea Party, and I love the, you know, they pour tea through everything, including, like, through their own sleeves and... um. I just I love the idea of the unbirthday party too. Is to like that to me that's another big takeaway or it should be taken away from this film but it's kind of forgettable is that like you should celebrate every day whether it's your birthday or not that you should be you know finding the joy in in every day. Yeah. Um the unbirthday song has become a popular song in the in the Disney canon. Um Edwin we we saw him in Mary Poppins. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago. He plays the Mad Hatter. Interesting fact about this movie, too. This was the first Disney animated film that actually had a a credit screen for the voice actors. That was partially because of Edwin. Right. Because you had quite a few people in this film that were very, very famous when the movie was made. Edwin being probably the most famous at the time. And... He does a really good job as the Mad Hatter. He's goofy and he's you know he's zany. He's a lot of fun. He's got that lisp, but he 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 toes the line. He's he's mad, but he's not completely out of his mind. Something that somebody else didn't learn when he made his version <laughs> of the character. 
What I love uh, about what they did with Edwin, too, is that they actually put him at a table with teacups and saucers and they just kind of let him go and read through his dialogue and the animator sat there and they pulled from his expressions to put into the Hatter. They did that with a lot of this film. Yeah. Which which I didn't know um, until we researched it a little bit more, but they did that a lot. It wasn't just that scene. It was multiple scenes to the point where Catherine Beaumont, who played... Alice they even had her in the outfit right like it looked like you could have gone you know right from the page to the screen she and she looks like Alice too she really does yeah well I think I think Alice was drawn to look like her because right uh she was you know she was a big inspiration for Disney um she was not the same Alice that he used in his earlier cartoons no or in his earlier live action into the animation. Right, because those, I think, I think he started those in 1923. So you're talking, I mean, this, this is... Like 40 years later. Well, not quite 40. 30? You're about 30 years later? Yeah. 48. 48 years. So, 30, hello, 28 years. Math, not a strong point with me today. <laughs> because I'm just, this movie has me scrambled eggs for brains. Like, I, I'm sort of surprised to say that. Considering a lot of the films that we've reviewed but there's just something about discussing this film that is so hard to put into words it's almost frustrating having this conversation right now i think what it is for me at least is that this is considered a disney classic and the characters are so iconic that it feels wrong to sit here and kind of trash the movie this is a classic example of the film is not as great as the sum of all its parts. Yeah. And I think that's what's kind of disappointing. I think at this point, we, we've started talking about some of the music. I think now is as good a time as any to discuss at least a couple of the songs that we haven't talked about yet. Um, in a world of my own, we talked about it a, a few minutes ago, but there is something I want to touch on with that. They sort of opened it with it wasn't it wasn't a ballad, it was a little upbeat but still very flowery. So it doesn't it doesn't start the movie on a fast pace because so much of this movie becomes so hectic and so fast. But I actually like that contrast that she's going from this sort of scenic, almost idyllic situation into this mayhem, and. It shows that maybe she wasn't really prepared to go down that rabbit hole. Right. Especially because this is our female lead song. And this should be the part of your world, the let it go. Right before the princess has like that big character moment of like, all right, I figured out what I want. And now I'm going after it. She's talking about. I know what I want, I know what I want, and then the complete opposite happens. Right, and it's the technically it's the first song in the movie. Right. Other than the song that plays over the opening credits. Interesting behind-the-scenes story about that. Um, there was actually a song written for this film called Beyond the Laughing Sky, and Alice was supposed to sing that in the beginning, um, but they just felt that it wasn't working, and it's... A good thing that they repurposed it because that song eventually became second star to the right in Peter Pan. I don't think that's the only song that got repurposed later on. If you listen to A-E-I-O-U, the song, or if you can even call it a song that the Caterpillar sings, it sounds very much like I Will Fetch the Water. Did you catch that? I was thinking more of Ka's scene. Trust in me? Yes, the, I mean, just the whole thing, the whole vibe kind of gives me that cough feeling, especially because he's a caterpillar and like he doesn't have control over his legs all the time and he's kind of like snaking down the flower. Um, but I remember when we were reviewing the Jungle Book, they had Cod doing the chant, but they needed a little something extra. So they added like that little drum roll underneath. But yeah, it it sounds like it's almost the same song. Yeah. Um, all in the golden afternoon. That's that's a number that I almost would have pegged for being in Fantasia. 
when all the flowers and the rocking horse fly and the rest of them, they mm. all come and they're singing. To me, that's something that's almost pulled right out of that film, made for this one, but I actually like that scene a lot. I think that it's... As do I. I think it's well done. I think it's beautifully animated. And I actually do like this song. As odd as this yep. sounds... Um, this is the song that I remembered the most. Same. I don't I don't know why, because for all intents and purposes, it is not nearly the most iconic song in this movie based on popular opinion, but there was just something about this entire scene that stuck out to me. I think this is where it stops the film from being a complete flop because it's things like this that they did get right. Like the personification of the flowers is amazing. How they used the different types of flowers to either form a face or an outfit or an animal. I think that was really smart. And like to me, that's like your classic Disney is giving life and emotion to something that is otherwise inanimate. Um, and that's probably why it's so memorable is because it feels like modern day Disney to us where we do see things come to life. Well, I think that part of that is because you had those classic Disney animators working on this film, but more specifically, Mary Blair did a lot of concept art for this movie. A lot of people know her. She's got some artwork over at the Contemporary Resort, actually. Um, that big mosaic over by the um, by the monorail, that's, oh, that's a Mary yeah. Blair. Wow. Oh, I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, and she became, I mean, and she, she had been for a while, so important for that company. And she was the one that brought in that contemporary look, those really bright, vibrant colors mm -hmm. that I think she set the table for a lot of the films that came after this one. Yeah. So that's where you kind of have that familiarity where you talked about it looked like a traditional Disney film. Right. Um talking about the uh, the animation i think that the settings and the backgrounds that they developed for this film were spectacular i agree um yeah like the the forest and everything like that's always really impressive although the only thing that's kind of a surprise to me is that they did use the multiplane camera but i feel like this film doesn't have as much depth as like say the jungle book or even Snow White, like you can really see the layers more. And I feel like this was all just kind of on one plane. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because while they got a lot of the settings and backgrounds, I thought that they did a great job with it. Some of it does look very flat, specifically her sister and her lips when she speaks. Mm. They both, and Alice too, don't really have a lot of depth in the face. Right. They are kind of very plain. When she makes her way down to that that babbling brook or that waterfront that she makes her way to. Yeah. It looks like it's unfinished. Like it has no real detail or dimension to it. It's just a bunch of white lines. Right. And I don't think that that was done intentionally like the way that 101 Dalmatians was stylized. Oh, not even slightly. Yeah. Um, But the animation is she falls down the rabbit hole is really, really, really good. That's probably my favorite sequence in this whole thing. Um, and I do like the animation where we finally get to see the Red Queen, where they're painting the roses red. I do too. See, that that looks like almost 101 Dalmatians to me with all the hedges. Um, they really didn't draw individual leaves. They're just kind of squiggles when you look at it. Um, so it's definitely, it's reminiscent of a couple of things. It's the animation to me looks like 101 Dalmatians. And then um, when they do the cards march, that reminds me a lot of uh, the pink elephants in Dumbo. Yes. Um, but I love that whole sequence. Uh, as soon as she gets into the hedge of mazes and she meets the cards and the painting, the roses red. Um, I think that song is really catchy, but I just love how absurd the idea is that they painted the wrong flowers and just to appease this crazy woman they had to paint them red 
Well, that I love that about this film because, and especially about this scene, is that before you've even seen her, you get an idea the length of which these people have to go to keep her happy because she clearly is unhinged. Right, and to me, I mean, all right, this may come as a surprise, but I love my Disney villains. No, you? <laughs> um, but that's what I wanted more of. Like, there's your story to me is if every with every character she met they all feared the queen and they were all maybe banished from the queen's kingdom and that's why they're out in the woods and you know I almost wish that there was like a cautionary tale from each of them as to why she should not be following the rabbit and I love the look of the queen of hearts yes I love her outfit I think that she's for somebody that is so diabolical for somebody that is such a tyrant she's totally whimsical yes and i do like how physically intimidating she is and i thought that it was a really smart choice to draw the king so mousy yeah because clearly she holds all of the cards no pun intended in that relationship and in that kingdom No, and everything about their relationship. He's always trying to smooth things over and avoid her having a temper tantrum. Oh, he's got a very much yes, dear sort of attitude, which you don't expect to see out of a king. And this is probably one of the first films to do it that way. Even though the way even the way he speaks is mousy. He's got that like high pitched little squeak and he's like, yes, my dear, let's have a trial. Yes. If that's okay with you. Yeah. It's funny. Um, yeah, really good stuff, and they and they make for a really fun sort of relationship. Um, but, I mean, I think what keeps this film going is the animation and the secondary characters. Like, I just, I don't, I don't have a lot of words for this movie at this point anymore, and I don't want to say it doesn't hold up, because clearly it does, I don't want to say it's not a Disney classic because it absolutely is. It's it's you know what's odd? I like this movie and I don't know why. Agreed. I think that you you just hit the nail on the head because as we were taking notes, I usually have like two pages full and I came up short and I'm looking at it and I'm like, but I love this movie. Like, why don't I have a lot to say about it? And I realize two things one I don't love it as much as I thought I did mostly in part because of Alice but it's it's just kind of really simple when you strip everything away I don't know that if they would have made this movie now if they remade it the exact same way animated I don't think this movie would have been a hit I think this movie would have been the flop the way it was a flop Back in 1951. But I think that actually, I think it would have been a box office flop. And I think the critics nowadays, because they do look at things more with a critical eye, and it's more, for lack of a better term, it is more sophisticated because cinema has come so far since 1951. Mm -hmm. I feel like they would have crushed this movie. They would have absolutely crushed it. And I think now... When when modern day critics talk about this film, I think they cut it a lot of breaks because of the way it's animated. Agreed. I'd have to agree with that. And that's that's what kills me here because this film did get a second chance and it did get a remake. And just based on everything that we've talked about... I kind of wish that the remake was putting a live action girl in an animated world, kind of like Jolly Holiday and Mary Poppins and that whole sequence. But that's also kind of what did happen because Tim Burton CGI'd the entire thing. And spoiler alert, next week we are going to talk about how much we hate the remake. And we don't do this often. We don't want to bury the lead and tell you what we think of the movie before we get to it. But the thing is, we've never really ripped apart a film on this show before. Like completely all out trash a film. And that's what you have to look forward to next week. Because there is nothing that we find redeeming and it's absolutely terrible. 
and you're going to hear us rip it a new one. Yeah, not really looking forward to next week. But news for this week, it was um, it was sort of a bittersweet week, I think, for, for the Disney community. Um, well, it might just be bitter, depending on who you ask. We got the official trailer drop for uh, Aladdin, the live-action remake, coming out later this year. And we got to see Will Smith as the genie. He is blue. Um, and a lot of people have something to say about it. Yeah, speaking of ripping a new one, what I can't really wrap my mind around here is that when the teaser dropped, obviously we didn't see anything from the genie. And all of the comments were like, oh my God, he better be blue. Well, now you got him blue and people have a lot to say about it. I don't know if we needed to see this, I'll be honest, but you got what you wanted, so you can't hate on it. I have no problem with how he looks. My issue is with Jafar. I don't buy Jafar at all. I think he looks lame. I don't think that he's a, an impeding, you know, an imposing figure. Um, I just, I don't buy him. Yeah, right now Jafar is looking like Glenn Close's Cruella Deville. So I'm hoping they toughen him up real good. And the very sad news this week that a lot of people, I think, by now have heard is that uh, Ron Miller, former CEO of the Walt Disney Company, has passed away. Um, he was 85 years old. He did outlive his wife, uh, Diane Disney Miller, who was Walt's daughter. We talked about Ron Miller um, when we did our review of Waking Sleeping Beauty, and Randy Cartwright talked about him as well, and it seemed like in spite of it all, he really did try to uphold that Disney tradition, and it's sad that uh, that he is no longer with us. Yeah, it's definitely sad. We didn't just lose a major pillar of the company, but we did lose a Disney family member, albeit by marriage. He was still a Disney. Yeah, and there aren't uh, there aren't many left at this point, unfortunately. Yes. So our condolences from Monorail Radio to the family. And that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Don't forget to check out www.monorealradio.wixsite.com slash home, where thanks to our wonderful partner over at Amazon.com, you can find the links to the instant Amazon video for every film that we review here on Monoreal Radio. If you're thinking about taking a visit to the parks this year, definitely get in touch with me right now. Disney is offering 30% off select hotels for spring and summer. So you can reach me at j.zolezzi at magicalvacationplanner.com or you can direct message us on social media. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.